Hello, all you opulent ostriches. Welcome back to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast about nature, conservation, and sustainability. My name's Casey. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Sarah, your uh, faithful co-host, I guess. <laughs> and we're glad to have you back for another week. And uh, we're excited to talk about some new things today. And generally, we like to kick it off by talking about our challenge from the previous week. And, and Casey gave us a, a double whammy challenge last week. So we had our, our regular challenge in our beast mode challenge last week. So uh, uh, to do a paper audit, so to do a paper audit in your house. And if you're you're feeling beast mode-ish to do a paper audit at your place of work as well. So Casey, how did you do on your paper audit? You know, uh, we gave ourselves a little extra time between this podcast recording and the last one. And so as of the last time we had attempted to record, we apologize for some of those audio issues at our last uh, episode. We're trying to renegotiate some of the tech here. Um, but that little extra time, we actually went out of state down to Tennessee and I was in a, uh, in a little store down there and was looking at greeting cards and they had the FSC logo on the background. Yeah. So, uh, I have found the FSC logo actually on my bamboo toothbrush and a couple other items here. I definitely could have done better on my challenge though, because I would have liked to better reevaluate our junk mail situation. We received six flyers for the same insurance company today. And I, (laughs) I think I need to start looking into contacting those companies and saying like, no, thank you. You can take me off of your general mailing list. But how about you, Sarah? How did you do? Um, I, I did not maybe take advantage of the extra week the same way that you did Casey, but I will say just generally, I didn't, I, I maybe didn't fully complete this challenge. I didn't do a true audit of, of my paper usage, but I did try to pay attention to the paper products that I was using. So, uh, and there are some changes that I've made over the past couple of years in my life that have helped a lot. So I don't have paper products. Like I don't, don't have tissues. I don't have paper napkins. I don't have paper towels in my house at all anymore. So don't have to think about those things. Uh, I know that my toilet paper situation is not currently great in terms of sustainability. So that's kind of next on my list to look at. And I'm, I'm with you, Casey. I think junk mail is, is the biggest thing that, uh, the, in terms of paper that I have consumed over the past couple of weeks. So that's probably the next, my toilet paper situation and then junk mail are probably my two biggest home paper uses right now that I'm going to try to look at more closely. I think it's good that, that we're both kind of talking about how we didn't necessarily succeed in the challenge this week. The podcast is really good for accountability. And I think it's important to remember that each of these challenges is going to come at a different point in your life and affect you maybe in different ways. So I, I like revisiting these. It helps me remember to take them a little more seriously, but I also like going back and thinking about one of our earliest challenges, which was get outside at least an average of 17 minutes a day to get all of those good benefits from it. And that's something that I try and do every week consciously now, and that's been an improvement on my life. So I hope that for our listeners, that can be something, an improvement for your life too, and that you can keep up with some of the ones that you feel are most applicable to you to carry on in future weeks. For sure. I agree. And it's not that I've never thought about my paper usage before, but thinking about it 
together and talking about it, I think makes me personally more likely to take action. So hopefully that is helpful for you folks listening as well. Yeah. And if you do decide to do a challenge, tag us, let us know. We want to cheer you on and support you and know what you're doing. Celebrate your victories. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you're doing. So for this week, we're going to be talking about water, as you probably already saw from the title of this episode. So Casey, to kick off our episode, my question for you this week is, what's your favorite water-based activity? Like, are you a, a water person? Do you enjoy recreation on the water? I would identify as a water person. I mean, like 70% of me is water, obviously, but hanging it out on water. uh, We did a lot of like freshwater activities as a kid. We did a lot of going out on the lake uh, with my uncle. And that's actually something we we do with friends every year. That's one of my favorite things is just relaxing and like sitting in the lake water where it's nice and cool. And just, it's a nice little break from adulting. So I I really enjoyed that. Something that, that I, I also really like the beach too. I would say that I'm more easily like something touches my foot at the beach and I run out of the water (laughs) than I am in fresh water. Um, but one of my favorite memories of something that I've done is I studied abroad in Northern Ireland and we went surfing at one point and that was just a really cool experience. Something I had always wanted to do. I think I was better at it than I expected to be by no means good, but better than I expected to be. So I see that as a very fond, like adventurous memory, um, that I'll hold with me. So I, I really, I, I love water activities and I'm excited because I'm pretty sure I'm going to learn a lot today during today's episode. (laughs) It's funny that you say that because I'm not a water person. (laughs) I'm doing this episode on water, but I absolutely don't identify as a water person. I, I know how to swim, but I'm not a strong swimmer. I don't feel like I necessarily enjoyed doing water activities. I grew up not too far from Lake Michigan and we certainly, you know, visited the lake and went to the dunes and, and that sort of thing. But I was, I guess I like to be near water, but going in the water is not something that's uh, particularly appealing to me. And I'm the opposite of you also in terms of fresh water versus ocean water. I would much rather go in the ocean than a lake. I have no idea why, but I'm just a little more freaked out by lake water. But with with all that said, uh, there have been a couple of uh, recreational water things that I've gotten to do in my time. And they were also when I was traveling and I had the opportunity when I was in college to go to Australia and spend about a month in Australia. And I mean, holy cow, that whole trip was amazing. I got to do so many cool things. I loved getting to see uh, uh, several different cities in Australia, but I got to do a few things. One of them was whitewater rafting. And that was so much fun. I'd never had a desire to do that before, but it was just, it was part of this group trip. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna do it. And it was amazing, so much fun. And then we also had the opportunity to, to try surfing. Horrible, horrible. I was the worst. I maybe stood up once, if you could call it that, barely for a second. Um, but it was also really fun to do that. And then we also got to go sailing, which was really cool one of the times. And then I got a little seasick the second time, so it wasn't as cool. Uh, but lots of fun uh, memories and, and cool experiences that I'm glad I got to do at least once in my life. So um, today's episode, what we're going to discuss later is more based 
on how we use water residentially, like where do we get our water from and, and why does it matter? But I do think part of that, it's important to think about that not only do we utilize water that way for drinking and showering and all of that, but it is that same water that makes up habitats for our animals and provides recreation for us. It's all connected. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, but stick around everybody. We're going to be back in just a minute with a review from Casey. everyone and we are back with our review segment for the episode today i'm going to be reviewing one of what sarah has termed a sustainable swap uh, that we have done in our last year so i love that and it's also connected to our last episode about paper sourcing your paper from someplace more sustainably so i am going to be reviewing who gives a crap which is a <laughs> toilet paper brand that we now uh get our toilet paper from and it, this started actually because Andrew is extremely anti single use plastic currently. It's something that he feels super strongly about, which is great. I support that entirely. Um, some swaps we have made, I would say, are uh, more labor intensive. For example, <laughs> um, he bought a bread maker so we wouldn't have bread that came in plastic packaging. That is dedication. It's dedication and the bread maker walked itself off the counter this week. It like, <laughs> it, because it was kneading no. and it, it sort of just oh, wobbled no. off the counter and like half exploded on the ground. It still oh. works magically. Oh, thank goodness. Um, it, it like, yeah, there's several parts that are not there anymore. But that yeah. really stressed me out <laughs> just hearing that. It was really sad, um, but that's more labor intensive. He's responsible for ba baking the bread uh, because that takes more. Um, but there's certain swaps that actually I think reduce your labor. And this is one of them. And that's because who gives a crap is not a toilet paper brand that you would find in the store. This is one that you can order to be delivered to you. Now, what makes who gives a crap different is a couple of things. So first of all, plastic free, you can imagine the wrapped toilet paper you get from the grocery store, not only has like plastic packaging around the outside, but oftentimes either the individual rolls or certain segments of rolls are all wrapped in plastic as well. This is wrapped in paper and it comes in a cardboard box and the paper is actually really cute. Like they decided let's not just make it some sort of like throwaway paper. I've actually wrapped Christmas presents in our toilet paper <laughs> wrapping paper because awesome. they come in really cute little packages. So yeah. So we wanted to reuse those and I think they work great for them. Um, we got the recycled one. So that's another thing that's different. This is what we would term treeless toilet paper. So it is from hundred percent recycled paper sources. I think I read somewhere that it might be textbooks, but regardless, it's paper that didn't come directly from trees. It's, it's post-consumer product. They also sell bamboo source paper as well. If that's more of your style. Also 50% of their profits actually go back to helping build toilet and sanitation infrastructure in places that don't have those existing structures. So something I found really interesting is that some of the founders of Who Gives a Crap recognized that in the nonprofit world, a lot of times it's difficult for projects to get up off the ground because they can't count on sustainable funding. And we see this in conservation all the time, is that 
someplace is willing to donate $5,000, but they're only willing to do it once. So can you do this study that you want in the, a year? Can you make what you need happen in a year and not have any additional maintenance costs that are now not covered by this one year grant? So they were like, well, everyone needs toilet paper. So if we have a company that's continuously selling toilet paper, we're going to be able to provide more sustainable funding to these programs to help make sure that their infrastructure and sustainability and sanitation are all there. So I thought that was really cool. And with the toilet paper shortage that happened last year with <laughs> COVID, um, a lot of people ended up buying their toilet paper from Who Gives a Crap, which I believe is an Australian company. Hello, mm -hmm. Australian listeners. And, uh, and so they were able to raise, gosh, I think they donated 5.7 billion. No, not billion, not billion, million, <laughs> more reasonable number, but still $5.7 million, yeah, I believe very they, impressive. they uh, donated for those projects. That's really awesome. And it, it really is affordable. So, it, you know, when you buy, we got 48 rolls and I believe it was for $48. They offer like coupons in certain cases. If you get a referral, that'll get you money off as well. So like that's pretty reasonable a dollar a roll and I don't have to like normally I'm like oh that's so much money so I'll <laughs> only buy like 16 rolls from the grocery store and that means that I'm like running out more frequently and we have been doing this since like gosh maybe September I think is when we first bought ours and we're still in our first shipment wow the last couple of rolls are in red paper and it's like, this is your emergency <laughs> roll, you know, <laughs> make sure this reminds you to order more, which is really cute. So it's, it's something that really hits all the boxes for me. It is something that is good for the environment, both with plastic and with recycling and making sure that we're keeping in our, our trees and not using them for toilet paper because they got better things to do than be wiping your butt. But, uh, it also helps out people who need access to those things too. And, and provides it in a way that is a little more sustainable than sometimes you see, you know, like think about a major corporations saying they made a donation to a certain foundation again, like that's not necessarily a sustainable source of income. So that's really cool that they're able to do that. I will say like, I'm someone who I understand, like we shouldn't eliminate all creature comforts in right. our lives to be more sustainable. Like, I don't think that you need to live the life of a monk or hermit to commit to sustainability. If like your one creature comfort in life is your Charmin ultra soft, like this is not Charmin ultra soft. <laughs> it's definitely, it's three ply. It's still thick enough that I don't feel like I need to like, you know, wrap my hand all up in it, but it is not like a wiping yourself with a blanket. Right. It's just not that. Um, and for me, one of my creature comforts is having campfires. So I, I like to, to do campfires and, and burn wood in their backyard and toast s'mores. That's not necessarily like an eco-positive thing to be doing out there, but it's not something we're going to stop doing just because it's not the you know best thing for the environment in the grand scheme of things. It's pretty small, but if I can then offset it by protecting trees, by having uh, this recycled toilet paper, to me, that's like a nice little trade-off of like this. I, I thought it was maybe a little more important to me than it was. And I switched over and I'm like, no, nope, I'm totally fine with something that's just toilet paper. Right. That's awesome. I'm excited because this, uh, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, this is kind of my next thing. And I'd already decided that who gives a crap was going to be the the toilet paper that I went with uh, when I run out of my current supply. And you just made me more excited about it. Yay. So that's awesome. Thanks. But yeah, there's 
and I, so I've been doing research into toilet paper a, a little bit in, in preparation to, to make this switch to make sure this is what I wanted to go with. And yeah, there's just so much positive, I think, to be said for this, this company and what they do. And most of those major toilet paper brands that you do find in your grocery store just do not rank very highly when it, when it comes to sustainability. So if you are not one of those people that just really needs your ultra soft, uh, which I am definitely not, I'm, I've always been all about just whatever I could find that was cheapest anyway. So I'm not concerned about that part at all. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be making the switch and thanks for the review, Casey. Yeah, you're welcome. Also, there are other companies out there. So if you see one that like, I believe the company real, real they do yeah. yeah bamboo and they are a black owned company i believe and so if that's something that you're trying to prioritize in your purchasing power bamboo is more sustainable than cutting down old growth forest for uh, trees i like the recycled paper i think that that's probably the best option and that's one of the reasons that i stick with who gives a crap but uh, again if that's something that you're prioritizing there's a black owned business that you can be supporting and it's better than supporting the big guys so yeah and that's real is R-E-E-L if you're looking yes. for it. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. Thanks, Casey. And everyone stick around. We'll be back for a main discussion in just a minute. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started with our main discussion, which, like I already said earlier, is going to be about water, kind of really focusing on on how we use it and why how we use it matters. And I, I feel like there were a couple of reasons that I wanted to talk about this, one of which being that I feel like from the time that you're a little kid, these little water conservation tips are some of the first things that you learn turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth, take shorter showers. You know, we, we learn about these little ways to save water from the time that we're young. And I feel like a lot of us maybe don't ever fully understand why it matters. Am I really saving water if I turn off the faucet? How does that work? How is this all connected? So I, I that's why I wanted to kind of dive in a, a little bit deeper than that today. And I think you know if you're if you're like me and you're fortunate enough to live where you have always had easy access to to clean, safe water, the way that we use water may not seem very important to you because it's always there and it seems like such an abundant resource. Um, the, the other day, the YouTube algorithm decided that I needed to watch this video of the cast of the movie Mar- The Martian talking to astronauts on the space station. I'm not really sure why they thought that I needed to watch that, but it worked. I watched it. I you uh, did. <laughs> and one of the one of the questions that they asked the astronauts was about like when you're when you're looking down on Earth from the space station, is there any landmark that kind of sticks out to you that like makes you feel something when you when you see it? And the astronauts respond, you know, he said, you know, there were some things like the, you know, where I live and that, but he was like the biggest thing that I always notice when I look down at the earth is how much blue and white there is it's it's the clouds it's the water like how how much of our planet is is covered in water so you know it's over 70 percent 
of the surface of our planet is covered in water, um, which would make you think that sure it's everywhere and, and, and having clean, safe drinking water shouldn't be uh, an issue, but it's, it's unfortunately not as simple as that 70% number might make it seem. So Casey, just generally speaking, how much do you know about where your water supply comes from? I know very little about where we live right now, where my water comes from. I know that I'm not always hundred percent confident in it. Yeah. Um, we do have a filter here that we should probably be using more often because sometimes it comes out a little cloudy. I do know that growing up uh, in the house my dad lives in now as my grandparents' house, they have well water there. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the my life we got city water and I, that's really all I know is it's city water, yeah, <laughs> not where it originates. Yeah. And, and so water, generally speaking, and, and this is true for where Casey and I live, but we actually get our city water, like our, our water supply is pulled from multiple sources. So we get our water from surface water, which is what it sounds like water on the surface. So rivers for for us here, that's a a river and its tributaries and then groundwater, which is water that has seeped below the surface and is in an underground aquifer. So our water supplier here where we live pulls uh, pulls our, our drinking water from both of those sources. And that's true across the United States. So it's going to depend a little bit on where you live, how much of your water is, is pulled from what sources. But generally in the United States, about 60% of our drinking water comes from that surface water sources, our lakes and our rivers. And the remaining 40% comes from those underground aquifers. So if we look at water on earth in total, that 70% of our earth surface that's covered in water, about 97% of that water is ocean water. Don't drink ocean water, friends. Uh, So that, uh, that salt water, obviously not accessible to us in terms of talking about clean, safe drinking water. So that remaining whopping 3% is found in glaciers, rivers, lakes, in the atmosphere as water vapor and underground in those aquifers, which some of that underground water supply is reachable for us. Some of it's actually too deep for us to access as well. So in thinking about how that 3% now is divided up, 69% of that 3% is found in glaciers and ice caps, obviously not accessible to us either for drinking water, 30% in groundwater, just over 1% of that is surface water. So our lakes, rivers, swamps, etc. all of that is just over 1% uh, of the surface water that's accessible to us. So breaking down all of that math, that, that leaves us with about about half of a percent of the earth's water that is available fresh water to us for drinking. So thinking about our vast blue and white planet that looks like so much water, just about half of 1% of that is available fresh water to us. So that helps put things in a little bit of perspective, although because of how much water we do have on earth, that half percent should still be enough for uh, all of us to have the water we need, but again, access and location, availability and quality of that water uh, are all issues that we have to face as well. Would you say it's it's fair to say that like, not only is that 0.5% of water available to us, but also 
almost all terrestrial living beings. Correct. Anyone who's not an ocean dweller relies on that small percentage of water. Yep. Absolutely. It's all connected. Yep. So uh, our drinking water, habitat for wildlife, ecosystems, all of it, that half percent. Makes you think a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So Sarah, I, I think a lot of times when we think of water, like when someone tells you to turn off the tap, for example, isn't water just a renewable resource? Like it doesn't really go anywhere. It can be back in the cycle, right? We learned about the water cycle. Yeah. And I think that was a confusing thing to me, you know, as a kid growing up and learning about this too, because we would learn about water as a renewable resource and, and learn about the water cycle. And, And, and that is true. So Another just sort of mind-blowing thing to to really think about is all of the water that we have on Earth is all of the water that we've always had on Earth and is all of the water that we will ever have on Earth. And it just does go around in this endless cycle, uh, which is really fascinating to me. So so that's true, but the issue is, is that water is not always available where we need it to be in the cycle when we need it to be. So you can kind of think about it like a bank account and you know you don't want to overdraw your bank account. Even if you know you've got that next paycheck coming in three days, it doesn't matter. You can't take that money out until your paycheck gets deposited first. So you can kind of think about it like that. If we are overusing water, we can drain our local supply. So our local uh, our, our local reservoirs, wherever we're getting our water from, we need to make sure that those reservoirs have time to to recharge. So this is an issue that we deal with now. This is an issue, uh, depending on where you live, might be more or less likely to to happen where you're at. But this is also going to be exacerbated by things like climate change. So climate change is going to have a lot of impacts on our water cycle and supply. So um, just the occurrence of more unpredictable weather events can be a factor. Um, Warmer temperatures leading to increased rates of water evaporation, flooding resulting uh, in increased water contamination. So thinking about you know, water reaching places that it wouldn't normally reach and flowing over impermeable surfaces and taking whatever it, it runs over back into the water supply. Um, you name it, there's going to be any any number of impacts on our, on our water supply due to climate change. So so that's, that's why it matters, that water use. We need our water to be accessible in the right part of the water cycle. I think that's something we sometimes, uh, because many of us were introduced to climate change as global warming. I think right. that it, it kind of, that, that part of it falls to the back of your mind, you know, things are going to get warmer and maybe that can tell you that things are going to get drier as well. Cause we associate hot summers with droughts, but that unpredictable weather things like, I think we had pretty severe flooding here in the Midwest of the United States in 2019. And that also impacts things like food supply. We had really cold weather down in Texas that can freeze all the pipes and ruin a lot of the water infrastructure. And so it's not even just like what's available right now. It's also how do we get it? How do we make sure clean, accessible water gets to people as well? Um, So yeah, I think that that's something that we don't necessarily think of the complicated ramifications of maybe it's just more simplified in my brain, at least uh, when I first start thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so Casey, you mentioned the water cycle and, you know, this is something that we, we learned uh, as kids. How much do you remember about the water cycle? If I we were like going have, like, if I had to label a map, I think I could do it. You're so good. I actually don't know <laughs> that I could have other than like, like four or five things, four or five words I could put up on, uh, on a, a water cycle from what I remember as a kid. We all have experienced that my memory is, is poor. <laughs> I'm so impressed uh, with your abilities. So, well, we'll, we'll see. So, you know, it, it hangs up in clouds. Let's start in the clouds and you have precipitation when it gets too heavy, it falls to the ground. Yes. Yep. And so then that's one, one yep, avenue. Yep. One avenue that it goes down and then it can be like runoff right mm -hmm. off the land into yep. our lakes and, and rivers and all that yep. available fresh water. It can also sink down into the groundwater. Mm -hmm. Sarah's like, I, I can't tell if she's frozen or she can't hear me. Yep. Ah, I, I lost you for just a second there. So you were talking about runoff. So we've got, we have our precipitation falling on the ground. We have runoff. Fall. Yep. Running yep. over the ground mm -hmm. and into our, our, uh, rivers and lakes. Yes. And then we, depending on the permeability of the ground, it yes. can get into our, like, uh, our groundwater as mm -hmm. well. It can get in there. Seepage, which sounds um, not positive, but ooh, that sounds, is I don't just, like that, but it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah. We want permeable surfaces. <laughs> um, but actually the part that always like blew my mind, cause I knew like that whole cycle and then evaporation, it goes back into the atmosphere. But the part that blew my mind, I think when I was in like middle school or high school, and we learned kind of the more complicated water, uh, cycle was transpiration. Yeah. That's like my favorite part of the water cycle. So that's basically basically like the trees and the plants suck it up. And then that is part of what creates rain is that it releases water into the atmosphere. Do you seriously remember all of this? <laughs> Maybe I don't, I guess it's a blessing and a curse to oh. have a memory like this. Yeah. I'm really good at holding grudges. I'm really good at trivia. <laughs> oh, man. So, so yeah, so there you go. You guys all know where all the water goes. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, so, and there's also, uh, we talked about water being trapped or, or caught up in uh, glaciers. And so there, there's a portion of, of ice and snow. So we do also get um, snow melt and water uh, running off from snow melt into our surface water, um, which is another potential area that, that climate change is going to impact that as well. So there are some, if you are, don't have Casey's memory and want to refresh yourself on the water cycle, um, the USGS, so USGS.gov, they have a lot of great water information actually. And they have these really fun interactive water cycle diagrams that are really cute and they have them at, at different levels. So there's like a basic intermediate and advanced depending on how uh, interested you are in it. And uh, you can click over on all, all of the different things. So if you don't remember what transpiration is, you can look that up on the, the usgs.gov water cycle diagram. So it's a really cute resource. Yeah. And I, you know, we have some international listeners, which I think is still blowing both of our minds yes, a little bit. And I believe you. Sarah, the USGS stands for United States yes. Geological Service. Is that yes, right? Thank yes. you. Yep. And so that would be .gov here in the U.S. I don't know if that impacts you, but it's a universal cycle. So you guys can, can see that on that website as well, if you're not from the U.S. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think this was where another part where I got confused as a kid to learning this water cycle. What I need being a sort of visual learner is I need somebody to create a good water cycle diagram that then like superimposes our like where our water supply comes from on there. That's what I need. Um, but if you look at that, that water cycle diagram, we talked about surface water and groundwater. So we talk about, uh, you know, how the water gets to those locations. So that's where you can imagine then our system, our water treatment supply, uh, you know, systems pulling water from those lakes and rivers or from those underwater ground, uh, um, uh, underground water sources as well. And, uh, and so we'll talk a little bit about how, how that works, how we pull that out and then where it goes when we're done using it. That was going to be my question. It's like, I always feel like it's like a take. Do we put water back into the system? We, we do. Yeah. Right, yep. cool. The water that we use all goes back into that system in some way, sometimes really closely to, uh, sometimes it goes back basically into the same source that you take it from. And then depending on what you're using it for, it might go back into the cycle in other ways. So uh, we'll talk about that a, a little bit here in just a minute too. So Another thing I want to mention in terms of our discussion today, like almost every episode that we talk about, there's a lot that you could talk about with water usage and, and water conservation. Today, I am going to focus mostly on individual water use, residential water use, how we use water in our homes. But it is important to note, and again, I'm, I'm speaking more specifically in the United States, but guessing this is true pretty much no matter where you live, that much of our water use here in this country goes to other sources. So agriculture and industrial use um, are going to be the bigger uses of water when you compare that to individual or, or residential use. So water is used heavily for irrigation in terms of agriculture. It's used in production a lot. So we have a lot of indirect water use through things like the making of our paper products, the making of our clothes, you know, the food that we eat, all of these things are, are, are indirect water use. So that's something to think about and something that we'll probably be talking more about later in the future. So here in the United States, about 45% of our water withdrawals are for thermoelectric power, about 32% are for irrigation, and then just about 12% of water withdrawals here in the United States are for that public water supply. And uh, here's the thing that I did not know uh, before I, I, start, I started researching this, is that there are kind of two ways. I was finding like different sets of numbers for a lot of these things, and I wasn't able to figure out how they kind of match up. Um, but there's actually two different terms that you can use uh, when you um, talk about water supply, and that's water withdrawn and water consumed. So when we're talking about water use. It's really a little bit more accurate to use those water withdrawn or water consumed phrases. So water withdrawn is the total amount of water that is removed from a source. If you're talking about water withdrawn, it's really just how much that you take out. But like we were just saying, a lot of that time when we're pulling water out of a source, a lot of it's actually going to go right back into that source when we're done using it. So there's also this phrase of water consumed. 
and water consumed refers to the amount of that water that is taken out but is not returned to that source. So basically it goes back into a different place in the cycle. So something like irrigation, when you use water for irrigation, you're going to lose a lot of that water to like evaporation, right? So that's what we talk about when we talk about water consumed. So your water withdrawn, when you're talking about those numbers, that would be a bigger number, I guess, but might come across. So something might withdraw a lot of water, but not consume as much water. Does that make sense? I think so. So like, let's say that I turn on my faucet and then turn it off. That would be water withdrawn because the stuff going down the drain could potentially be. Yeah. Well, it's all going to be water withdrawn, but yeah, you wouldn't probably necessarily wouldn't have a whole lot of water consumed. Right. Versus like if I, if I used it to make a plastic bottle and it was polluted and couldn't go back or had to be shipped out to someplace else, I might be confusing this metaphor. Well, I think it's more just like, so again, thinking about the, like the irrigation example that you're, you're losing it to a completely different part of the cycle. Not necessarily that you're putting it back to a different place, but you're, you're, it's, it's going to a different part of that, that water cycle that we talked about. Okay. Is my understanding again, guys, not experts, but regardless, that's just, that's one possible reason. If you're looking into this and you're looking at different numbers, knowing that there is a water, a water withdrawn versus a water consumed discrepancy, uh, might be a reason for some of those, those differences in how much water different things use or take up. So look at, look at what they're actually talking about there. So with that and thinking about the different ways that we can use water, what are the ways that you can think of Casey, that you use water daily around your house? Like, what would you guess would be your biggest direct, again, thinking about direct uses right now, what do you think your, your biggest direct use of water would be? It's gotta be my shower. I think. Um, you're smiling. I don't know if that makes it the wrong answer or the right one. <laughs> well, I don't know personally. <laughs> True. Um, I mean, I only shower every other day. Um, typically unless it's in the summer and we're working outside and it's disgusting and then I'll shower more often. Um, but I would, I like a good hot shower. So that's probably it. I mean, I also wash my dishes in my dishwasher, wash my clothes in the, the washing machine, but, and then we drink obviously some water as well. <laughs> Um, but I do think that I probably give at least a couple gallons to irrigate my own crops at home. Cause I water my, my veggies. Yeah. Um, we do not water our lawn as we've talked about before <laughs> our, our lawn, <laughs> our lawn is a lot of dandelions and they do just fine without anything from our hose. Um, yeah, but I bet you the biggest wastewater is forgetting to turn off the hose in our house. Um, and having it leak, it's got to be our biggest, like, oh, that shouldn't happen anymore. So, uh, so that, what about you, Sarah? That's interesting. I would say the same as you, if I were going to think personally about myself, I do also really like a good hot shower. And also I like hot baths and I know that baths take more water, but I I guess we, you know, we were talking about toilet paper being some people's luxury item hot baths are mine. That's, <laughs> I know that's your I creature need to comfort. stop it, but, <laughs> um, but so 
overall, generally speaking, according to the EPA anyway, um, about 70% of our residential water use is actually is indoor water use, um, so about 30% for that outdoor, like you were talking about watering your garden there. Um, but about 70% of our water use is indoors. And surprisingly to me, the, the top contributor is toilets. Flushing the toilet oh. is your top water use. I, th- it surprised I me. I didn't think about that. Um, but that is was number one at 24%. Uh, shower coming in second at 20%. I am I would bet that that is reser- reversed in my household. But, um, but those were the top two. And then they just have faucet was the next category. Um, so I feel like that could be anything from your drinking water to brushing your teeth, washing your hands, Making that sort spaghetti. of thing. Yeah, all very specific examples, but yes, <laughs> at 19%, um, clothes washer at 17%, leaks actually coming in at 12%, and then just a catch-all other, other category down at the bottom there. So I was surprised by that one personally, but yeah, I, I think maybe the, the hot shower is my, my biggest weakness. So, but regardless of how you're dividing up that water usage. Again, the thing to keep in mind, a lot of that water is going straight back down the drain and it's going back out into the cycle. A lot of times right into those same water supplies where we got it from. Sometimes it might go out into a, a, a different point, uh, might go a little further downstream or whatever, but it's all going to end up right back in our surface or groundwater sources and whatever we do to it goes with it. So whatever we are putting down the drains goes back out uh, into our environment. So something to think about. And I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper now into actually how that works. So uh, what we're doing or what happens to our water before it comes to our house uh, and and a little bit kind of on, on where it goes when when it leaves as well. I don't really like to think too much normally about the the where the water that I'm drinking comes from, but this was kind of interesting to read these steps a little bit. So as we're we're pulling uh, water out from whether it's those surface or groundwater sources, and it's getting treated to come to our house. Um, and again, this might vary a little bit depending on where you live. Um, but the first step sounds horrible. It's coagulation and flocculation. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but uh, not, again, not extremely appealing words, but this is basically adding chemicals to the water that are going to bind with dirt and particles in the water, and it forms bigger particles, again, unappealingly, called flock. Uh, this flock sinks to the bottom uh, of, of the water so the rest of it can be, be passed on through. Um, so it goes through a lot of filtration before it gets to our houses as well uh, to remove more uh, dissolved particles, um, bacteria, viruses, chemicals, all of those sorts of things. It goes through a, a filtration process and, and then it goes through a disinfection process as well. And you know, all of these are, are good things um, to 
again, get rid of parasites, bacteria, any germs that we might find in our water. Uh, a lot of times fluoride will be added to water. It helps prevent tooth decay. Uh, and then depending on where you live, there might be other steps as well. So apparently here in the Midwest where we, we live, uh, lead pipes are a pretty common thing for our water systems. So typically phosphates are added to, to the water. And what this does is it adds a little bit of a, a film or a protective barrier between those lead pipes and water and it keeps that lead, thankfully, uh, from leaching into our water supply. If you live in an agricultural heavy state, uh, you might have issues with nitrates running off uh, into your water, might come from fertilizers, uh, manure runoff. If septic systems uh, aren't uh, treated or cared for properly, so your water facilities may have um, other processes in place to help deal with that as well. Um, but again, here in the United States, our public water supply is regulated by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And so these our water utility companies have to do scheduled tests, submit data, uh, ensuring that the water supply is, is um, safe and healthy and, and um, all levels are where they need to be. It is important to point out with that, that about 15% of Americans get their water from private wells, and this does not actually fall under the protection of the EPA, which is also interesting to me. Um, so if you have private well water, you are responsible for the maintenance of that and quality checks on your own water system. So with all of that in mind, we know that not everybody in this country or around the world has access to clean, safe water. So places don't have the infra infrastructure in place. Um, and this is strongly tied to race and economic factors. Um, there was a study from the U.S. Water Alliance that stated that Native American households were 19 times more likely than white households to lack access to indoor plumbing, which is staggering. And, you know, there's a lot of issues that are tied into this federal funding for water expansion of water facilities and sanitation facilities has fallen. So a lot of times now it's up to state and local governments, which leaves lower income areas more vulnerable. Yeah. So when you hear politicians in the U.S. talking about infrastructure, this is one of the things that would be tackled in an a proper infrastructure bill. So this is something that you're passionate about. And we're going to talk a little bit about some environmental justice in a moment. That's something that you want to push on for getting equitable access to clean drinking water across the country. Absolutely. And, and one of the more prominent, relatively recent incidents in the United States that many of you are probably at least passing familiar with is the Flint water crisis, which started back in 2014. And we're going to talk just a little bit about some of the issues that kind of led to this situation. Again, you know, thinking about the importance of, of state and local governments here. So Flint, Michigan is a city in which 40% of the people live in, in poverty. And in an effort to save money back in 2014, the city decided to switch its water supply from the city of Detroit's water supply to another source. And so they were constructing their own 
pipeline to another water source. But in the interim, they had decided to just get their water from the Flint River um, instead of using the Detroit water supply again to save money. So there were concerns, some concerns about that in and of itself. But if you'll remember, we just talked about here in the Midwest, the lead pipe situation and how water treatment facilities will add phosphates to the water to help prevent that from being an issue. They made the decision to not treat their water with phosphates. So the high chloride in the Flint River led to corrosion from those lead pipes, and that led to all sorts of health issues because of lead levels in the water. So um, the residents of, of Flint were very early on trying to let their local officials know that, hey, this is an issue, showing them the quality of the water. There were reports of things like uh, skin issues and rashes and hair loss and that sort of thing. And it was a painfully slow process for their local government to acknowledge what happened and to start correcting the problem. Um, and there are still ongoing issues from this as well. So lead is an irreversible neurotoxin. So lead poisoning can lead to uh, cognition issues, behavioral effects. It can actually impact your IQ and, and there's not a cure. Uh, for it. So this is just a, a one large and sad example of what can happen when people are, are denied access to, to clean, safe water and the importance of having that infrastructure in place for everybody. So, um, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of issues that we could unpack here. And, you know, Casey did, did a great job of, of touching on those as well and making sure that we're aware of why this is important. And there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed in terms of socioeconomic issues and, you know, fair access for everybody. Yeah, I, I do want to, I, I am by no means an expert on Flint. I opened up the Wikipedia page and was like floored by how long and intensive it is. But it is important to, to note that environmental injustice, where we expose people and specifically people of color, the residents of Flint who were impacted by this were overwhelmingly Black people. Mm -hmm. And doing this is, as Sarah said, leads, leads to these cognitive impacts, these behavioral impacts that are going to last over a generation because it impacts children growing up. And it is a way in which when we look away, like when the Flint government and the Michigan government looked away from solving that issue when the residents advocated for themselves, it's, it's a slow motion violence against that community. We all know on a personal level what it feels like when you don't feel physically well or when you aren't able to get your basic needs met. It is so much more difficult to achieve everything that you need to achieve and to be able to even advocate for yourself. And so I just reading that was like, was so impressed by the resiliency of the, the people yeah. involved, the residents immediately when their water started to smell bad and look different, were pushing their local government, the local library before the government acknowledged there was an issue started providing clean water to the community. There were several amazing studies done, basically disproving the government and the company's mm -hmm. assertions that the, that the water was clean. Um, and these are fights that are happening in lots of places around the world, but it's really important to understand that those are 
inextricably tied to race. It's not just poor people. It's specifically people who historically have not had political power. And so when we advocate for new infrastructure and keeping our water clean, we need to also be really intentional in making sure the people who have historically and currently are impacted the most are the beneficiaries of these new projects that we put in place. So if you know, if, if racial justice issues are important to you, there is a place for you in the environmental movement and your environmentalism should be intersectional and recognizing that these impacts are not just uh, happening to species, they're happening right. to people and they're happening to very specific groups of people who have been marginalized. Yeah. And this is an area where I'm definitely still learning and growing and learning about these connections and, and these impacts and, and all of that too. So it's really important to keep in mind. Thanks, Casey. And, and the other things I'll say about Flint too is you know, so they have been at a place now where their water levels are testing normal again within normal limits, according to the EPA, but there's a, a lot of very understandable distrust uh, still there as well. So uh, ongoing issues, even after, you know, again, this all started back in 2014 um, and those issues are still very much carrying over today still. Um, and there are, are a lot of great resources out there if that is something that you're interested in uh, reading up on and, and learning a little bit more. Um, I think that I was finding some good, like I think it was NPR that had a good timeline of all of those contributing factors and issues that led up and, and contributed to that crisis. Again, like Casey said, not that this is <laughs> by any means an, an isolated incident, but it is it is one where there's some information available to you. So if you're interested in learning more, there are some good good sources out there. So obviously there are a lot of major issues to be addressed when it comes to thinking about making sure that everybody has equal access to clean and safe drinking water uh, in the long term. Uh, but part of what we can all do right now is to make sure that we are doing our best to keep our water supply healthy. And, uh, and there's a lot of work to be done there as well. Uh, an EPA study uh, back from 2008-2009 indicated that 46% of our rivers and streams are in poor biological condition. And there was also a study from 2012 that said the same thing for about a third of our lakes. So again, remember everything that goes down in our drain is going back out into that water supply obviously going through wastewater treatment facilities first, but those wastewater treatment facilities are designed to treat organic material, basically. They are not designed to treat things like paint or cleaners or different or medicines or different things that people might think it's oh, it's liquid it's okay for me to pour this down my drain so remembering that everything we do to our water and everything that we pour down our drain uh, is going back out into that water supply is really important so thinking about that Casey what are some things that you can think of that we can do to help protect our water supply you well, can't I can't see her, but Casey's got a cat in her face right now as I'm asking her to think about how she can protect the water supply. Well, I think you kind of touched on two things so far in this episode a lot, which was, was something that's true across just about everything is to reduce, reduce your mm -hmm. use, reduce consumption personally. So looking for ways to fix leaks in your house, not watering your dang lawn. One day we'll do an episode <laughs> about how you should kill your lawn. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, that's uh, what it's going to be titled, how to kill yes. your lawn. Anyway. I love it. <laughs> um, 
yeah. So that, that's one, you know, reduce your use that way. Take less frequent showers or shorter showers, that sort of deal. Um, but you also just mentioned not putting things down the drain that are not supposed to go down the drain. So yeah, if you do have some of those things, you know, look for, you can look for like, you know, if you have old paint cans or paint thinner sitting out in your garage, you know, you can uh, look for, you know, hazardous waste collection sites and that sort of thing. Um, there's also a website and an app called Earth 911. If you have uh, some of those materials that you're not sure how to dispose of, old cleaners and that sort of thing, you can look there and they have some good resources about that and potential locations that you can take certain materials to, to get disposed of properly. Uh, but yeah, being being thoughtful about uh, what, what you're putting down your drain is going to be really important. And then you can also do things like, again, thinking about our lawns, uh, not just not watering your lawn, but think about what you are putting on your lawn. So things like phosphates and nitrates from fertilizer can cause runoff. Uh, we talked about runoff as being a natural part of the water cycle, and it is. But remember that runoff is going to pick up anything that it runs over and then go straight down our storm drains and back out into the water supply. And that's one really important thing to note when we're talking about outdoor water use is that while water that goes down our drains or we flush down the toilet, that water is getting treated at a wastewater treatment facility, but water outdoors that runs directly down our storm drains actually doesn't get treated. It does just go straight out into the environment. So that's one really important thing to keep in mind. So if you are putting things on your lawn, at the very least, make sure that you are um, using them responsibly, uh, using them as directed and not over applying them to your lawn. This runoff goes down into our storm drain, gets back out into the water supply, and it can lead to algal blooms, which we've all heard about on the news. You can also think about doing something like a rain garden in your yard or using a rain barrel to help catch some rainwater and reduce that storm uh, or that runoff into storm drains. That can also help you re reduce your water use as well, because you can uh, use that water from a rain barrel to water your plants or some, some other things that you don't need to have necessarily uh, potable drinking water to do. If you've got a septic system, make sure you're maintaining that septic system. Leaks from the septic system can leach out into the environment as well. Uh, and another big one that I could do a little bit better <laughs> is to clean up pet waste because same thing um, that can lead to problems with runoff and ending up in the storm drain. So lots and lots of little things that we can all do to help protect our water supply. I think something that the, some of these actions have touched upon is that not only do we consume and uh, withdraw water from our system, we have transformed the landscape so some of those natural regulatory processes are not able to happen. Mm -hmm. So by reducing wetland area, by increasing impervious surfaces, by adding roads and roofs and all of that kind of stuff, those are things that have really altered the water cycle in a way that increases these connections to pollutants and things like that. So yeah. I, I really like the ones where we're talking about basically like keeping your water a little bit more where it lands mm -hmm. when, like when it rains using your, your rain barrel and, and trying to think about how our groundwater is connected to all of our local waterways there. So yeah, I got to do better about cleaning up my dog's poop. Too. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one for me. Yeah. I feel like also, can we just find a way to mention wetlands in every single <laughs> 
podcast episode yes. that we do. Hello, Indiana lawmakers. Wetlands Hi. are important. Protect your wetlands. Hi, we're very influential international <laughs> podcasters. People know that Indiana is not doing what it needs to do right now and do the right thing. Governor Holcomb veto that bill. Uh, that is your, your weekly PSA to protect the Indiana West. <laughs> uh, and on that note, I, I do hope that this was helpful for somebody out there to learn a little bit more about where, where you get your water from, where it goes and why it matters. And we'll come back in just a minute with some actions for you to take this week. Well, thanks, Sarah, so much for going through all of that. I learned a lot about our water and where it comes from and where it goes and what we can do. Can you tell us what our action is for the week so that we can keep on this subject a little longer? Yeah, I'm continuing your trend of having two two actions, two potential actions. Beast this week. mode. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, our action for the week is I'm just going to give you some resources for you to follow and to continue on your learning journey uh, through the water cycle. So um, there's several different water conservation organizations organizations out there. And I, I've picked a few. Certainly you can look for your own too. And especially if, if there's a good organization that you know of that's local where you live, um, that's a great thing to follow. But I picked a few that focus on kind of different aspects of, of some of the things that we talked about today. So there's one website that you can visit. It's www.cleanwateraction. Who says www anymore, by the way? So it's cleanwateraction.org. <laughs> cleanwateraction.org uh, is, a, is a resource that you can go to that's good for looking more into legislation to protect your water supply. There's also projectwet.org, which if we've got any fellow environmental educators out there, you are probably familiar with that. So that's a great resource for educational materials re related to uh, water or the water water cycle, water supply, and all of that. And then there's organizations like water.org um, that are working to provide people around the world with safe access to drinking water or uh, with access to safe drinking water. So that's action item number one right there. And can yeah, I ahead, add to those things sure. is that most of these places also have social yes. media. So if you're like, oh, I don't want to go to a website, just follow them on social media and then they'll just, you'll be able to passively come across some of their content when you're just doing your normal scrolling. Yeah. So that's honestly what I'm doing right now is just having our podcast page on Instagram is going to start following these these guys, if you want to find them quick and easy. Look at Casey just knocking out her action item as we're talking here. That's awesome. And so your second beast mode challenge, I can't do that as well as you, Casey. Beast mode. <laughs> is to calculate your water footprint. So you've probably heard about carbon footprints before. Well, guess what? You can calculate your water footprint as well. And you can go to watercalculator.org and go through, uh, answer some questions there. That's going to look uh, even more in, in depth than we talked about today at different uses of water. So both indoor, outdoor use and your indirect water use. So I'm excited to do this one. So that'll give you a, a look at at how you're using your water. And it can also give you some tips into how you can improve your water usage. A couple of challenges for you this week. 
Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah, for giving us such an insight into water usage. Again, we so appreciate everybody listening. If you've made it to the end, you're one of the dedicated ones. Thank you so much uh, for listening through through the action. If you haven't already, if you want to subscribe, if you want to follow us on social media, if you want to give us a rating and a review, or you can shoot us an email and let us know what you think and what we should cover next. Sarah, what's our email address? Our email address is a little greener podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, whether it's a question, a comment, a suggestion, anything like that. So feel free to send us an email. And also, if you are enjoying this at all, if you know anybody that you think might enjoy this, give us a share too. You know, if you're following us on social media, we really appreciate it when folks are sharing our posts and letting other people in their circle uh, know about us as well. I think for us, it's been exciting to have listeners. It's been exciting to get some some uh, feedback and participation on some of these challenges each week. We really appreciate that. And it's been, it's good to have that accountability here. So we want to really grow this little community and and be able to help each other out along the way. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, We'll see you next week and stay safe.